Introducing Sharon Richards. Hello, Sharon. Hey, Paul. Good to have you here. Thank you. Usually, this is the part where I、um, welcome the guests to come on the show. But I'm not only welcoming you on the show as a guest; I'm also welcoming you as a co-host because I am interviewing you、uh, and ask you about your African American experience. But I'm also inviting you to come on to interview me as an Asian American. So here we are. Uh, this is the end of June. We have passed Juneteenth, but we are still in June, so I suppose it's probably not too late to talk about that. For sure. Yeah. So you have recently written, you have published actually a wonderful article for、uh, North American Baptist、yes. on Juneteenth. And、uh, can we start with you reading one paragraph? Sure. It it begins while most of us in the U.S. learned in grade school that enslaved people were freed when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. There's quite a bit more to the story. Not all states fell under the jurisdiction of the 1863 Proclamation, and news of freedom traveled slowly to the states that were impacted. The Civil War continued for two more years. Until until General Robert E. Lee surrendered in April 1865. Two months later, on June 19, 1865, a Union regiment arrived in Galveston, Texas, announced the decrees of the Emancipation Proclamation, and informed the still enslaved people in that state that the institution of slavery had been abolished. No one told the enslaved peoples of their freedom until that first Juneteenth, two years after the decree was issued. That was amazing.、Uh, that was part of the American history, and I must say, the more I learn about our history, the more I feel that our nation is founded on paradox. First, the Independence War was fought against the tyranny of Britain. And then some American historians would say would argue that no, that's that's actually not a just war. And it was like, well, okay. And, or when the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But then now it turns out that our founding fathers. Did not have women or the blacks or Native Americans in mind, so resulting in the land of the free and the home of the brave, enslaving a people for 89 years after the founding of this nation. So Sharon, here we are, two minorities living in America, reminiscing our history and lived、uh, experience in this country. Yet Asian Americans have very different experiences compared to that of. African Americans, I love to hear your story. What was the world like when you were a child? Well, certainly, I was、um, a kid when a lot of the unrest in the '60s was going on. So I have、um, some markers that have stayed with me since then.、Um, I certainly remember watching. The news on our black and white Magnavox television, and being confused and frightened, and certainly present as my parents 
and family talked about what was going on um, and really just not really understanding the, the hatred there. I certainly I remember, like, why do people who don't even know me hate me? I, mm. I, it was just a kid trying to process this and yet I think it was a profound question that um, in 2022 we're still trying to figure out. Were you a teen or you you talking about younger than the No, teen. I was elementary age. Hmm, okay. Um, you know, some of the other things that I, I think about was um, my first black doll, which um, might not seem like a big deal to many, but um, to have a doll that looked like me. How old were you when you had your first black doll? I'm going to say, I'm guessing now, but I'm going to say about five or six. Huh, okay. But up until then, that was not, you, you know, everything, you know, all the babies were, 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 um, were, were white. All, you know, um, uh, Barbies were white. I did eventually get, you know, a, a, a black Barbie. I actually had Jan, which was um, an Asian kind of Barbie kind of a thing. Really? Uh, yeah, no, that's that's true. I, I um, have to be honest with you, Sean. I never played with dolls. <laughs> I have well, no idea what it meant. Well, yeah. You but, have to explain that to me. But, but you know, at that time, you know, you, you were, you were, you know, it's a different role then for women, but then being a mom and mothering and playing house and those things, hmm. that was all part of you developing who you would be and how you saw yourself. And so this is why this, this representation is so important. It was huge for me to get a black doll. That's interesting. Huge. That's interesting. And uh, who, who would be your, like your role model at the time? Um, aside from my mom, <laughs> um, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Frazier, she was a black woman and she was... Um, lovely and she cared about me and the rest of her students and she was a, a role model and of course I have to mention Lieutenant Uhuru from Star Trek I was a fan yes from the original series I was old enough to be part of or young enough to be part of the original series same here same so, here so, no shame in that no so, shame in that I mean I just I you know this idea again it, it's it, it's this in the importance of representation. The fact that that show dealt with such deep societal issues at the core of that writing, and yet we're talking about the future, and here is this woman who's on the bridge of the, the USS Enterprise. This is a big deal. And then there's all the whole, her connection, the, the actress who plays, um, who played her, Nichelle Nichols, who had a had a, a connection with Martin Luther King Jr., who at some point, if you, you may not know the story, but at some point she was thinking about leaving Star Trek and, and somehow they had a conversation, she and Martin Luther King, and he just said, you know, this is important. It's important that you be on that show. This is the this is a program that I let my kids watch. This is again. Wow, I did not know huge. that story. 
So Martin Luther, so Martin Luther King Jr. is the one who actually responsible for the integrity of the crew of USS Enterprise. Certainly, her role. Oh, and okay. He, and she, he was a voice of encouragement. This is something that you can Google and find out for yourself. But he had an, He impacted her um, her staying on that show. Absolutely. Now you brought this up, so I have to ask you. Yes. So um, remember the scene when uh, Uhura kissed James Kirk? Yeah, don't we all? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Was Was that huge? Was it a huge thing? You know what? I don't remember it then. Mm -hmm. I know it has since become a bigger thing because you know just the fact that the networks would, dare I say, allow that to happen on on the screen. Um, I, but I don't remember the scene specifically as being something that greatly impacted me then. Um, I don't know, is it true for you, but for me, uh, I became a fan when I was uh, watching those reruns, you know, mm -hmm. not, not with the first one. So I remember watching that scene and I thought like, oh wow, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And then it happened. And then uh, I read later on that, the, that um, I think that was the first uh, a black woman kissing a white man on TV, mm. so so it made you know quite a you know uh, quite a bang <laughs> on the news. Yeah, again, you know what what impacted me more as I watched it more and more in in reruns was just the the many different um, topics that that show addressed that we couldn't address in real life, but anything from race relations to um, um, uh, um, our, our environment and its importance and and how not to um, infiltrate another another culture without thinking about what you're doing and almost um, recognizing that you can damage something that's beautiful when you start to try and press in your values and your stuff on another people or another uh, species or in, in yes. terms of Star Trek species or race <laughs> or in, from another galaxy and it's just it's just amazing maybe cheesy yes but <laughs> but uh, the subject matter was just brilliant I suppose that's probably one reason why it resonates with so many of the uh, audiences mm -hmm. can you read um, one more paragraph for me sure Juneteenth is a day for celebration and remembrance with reverence to those who came before us, this day is a rallying cry for those of us of African descent to celebrate freedom granted and achievements made despite a multitude of obstacles and to encourage each other to press on, particularly in the area of social justice. That being said, it should also be embraced as a day for all Americans, honoring a day in American history where there was at least an effort made to right some of the wrongs and to move toward living up to the ideals outlined in the Constitution. Particularly for the American Church, Juneteenth should be a day to celebrate because it uniquely recognizes the Imago Day. It is a day to commit to working towards dignity, unity, and equality for all people. Thank you. That was so beautifully written. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the movie Black Panther. Mm. 
The message is that Wakanda, a fictional country representing the crux of Africa as a culture, as a people, or as a civilization, is a hidden gem. The appearance of Wakanda as a third world developing country is an illusion. In the movie, if you can look beyond the illusion, you will see the highly evolved civilization. Or as you say in your article, the Imago Dei, the image of God. Juneteenth is a day to commit to working towards dignity, unity, and quality for all people. And I think that was the overarching theme of the movie. In Wakanda, everybody was kings and queens. You can feel there's a sense of dignity, un unity, and equality within the kingdom. The trouble actually came from outside uh, of uh, Wakanda. And isn't that the Bible message, that we are worthy of the Son of God, that we are the hidden gems? I think this is why the message resonates with, um, with the audience. But the, tell me, what do you think about the movie? I absolutely loved it. Um, the, well, first of all, just the fact that, you know, it, it, there's, there's celebration of Wakanda in terms of this is, this is where everybody, what everybody wants. They want to be like them. So again, it's an upside view, upside down view of messages that, that African Americans have heard their whole lives perhaps that we're not this and we're not that we're not this we're not that but black panther flips it and gives us a view of yeah we're the we we are holding what everybody wants and when you see the different um the the the, the um those that are in charge in wakanda there there there's there's a beautiful there's cultural differences within wakanda there's some respect there, even among the different cultural differences. Um, but there is just strength and beauty and power and intelligence there. That is that's just off the charts beautiful. That's so well said. Yeah, uh, it, and I think that is um, really the brilliance of the story. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it it empowers a people and it shows how how wonderful they are and it, sh it gives the hope it gives a dignity and that is the imago Dei right that is the the image of God we actually all want to have that we want to, to see the best version of ourselves right. yes and, and I think that is uh, yeah, uh, why why the movie just resonated with so many people? Even from you know, for myself, I'm not black, but yeah, you know, look at it. Yeah, I want that. <laughs> right, right. And you know, there is, you know, there's so much on television and on um, in the movies where, you know, there's certain groups of people, certainly black people. I can pick others as well. Where just you know, we're always the bad guys. Right. And so right. to see to see. Um, a movie that is like no, this is this is the desired outcome. This Wakanda, that, that, you know, that was that was great. It was great. Well, with that in mind, I, I want to ask you about the uh, the Obama's uh, era too. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember um, watching the 2008 election. The TV anchors like uh, Charles Gibson and George Stephanopoulos recall that they felt the weight of the historical moment when they announced Barack Obama. Uh, winning the 2008 presidential election. 
and uh, America had her first African American president. What did that mean to you? Again, it's it it felt like wow, maybe we've really turned this corner. Of course, we know that there were lots of other torn corners that we right. have to turn. But right. it again, I as I said earlier, this importance of representation mm-hmm. and. Um, I know that there will be people who will, you know, they've done this as well with um, Supreme Court Justice, that, you know, you should be based on your qualifications, not on the color of your skin. But um, I think um, we'd be hard-pressed to say that Barack Obama was not um, qualified to be president. Mm -hmm. And so um, he... he, uh, was just such a role model again came president well you know some kids dream of being president some kids dream of winning you know winning a Super Bowl whatever but um, it it did give I think many many people of color not necessarily just black people hope and um, encouragement and and I also want to ask you about um, specifically Mrs. Obama, because yes. I, I think of Michelle Obama is more of a, a a generational icon than her husband, you know, compared to two, even when her husband was the president. So I, I want to read you something from, uh, from uh, a headline from Insider. It says, throughout the years, Michelle Obama has become a style icon. After Obama's 2021 inauguration look that left the internet in the days, Insider reached out to her stylist, uh, Meredith Coop, as well as 10 black professionals to talk about how Obama's style has influenced them. Coop helped craft the image of how a black woman looks co-hosting a state dinner, visiting the Queen of England, going on a book tour, and most recently at President Biden's inauguration. So I don't know if it's smart to ask a woman to uh, comment on the look of another woman, but here, here we go. Do you think Michelle Obama has an impact on how African-American women think of themselves with regard to self-esteem, confidence, or maybe more? I do. Um, first of all, I think that she's just elegant and she's a classy lady. She is um, um, so, she's, she's well educated and she carries herself well she speaks well she's um, very deliberate she comes she came alongside uh, President Obama as just a you know a really nice they made up for a very nice couple um, I think that she elevated the role of the first lady um, she just her her intellect and her um, her style is just just attractive. I'm not talking her her beauty, although she I think she's beautiful. But just the confidence that she exudes. Um, it, again, it becomes this idea of whatever people, whatever box people want to put black women in. I think that she broke through that. She was, you know, she's non-threatening, but she's a force to be dealt with on um, on her own. I think I understand what you mean. Uh, I remember watching a um, a TV show, and um, I, I don't know was it like was the news or whatever. Uh, what do you call it? But it was um, on Mrs. Obama. Michelle Obama walked into uh, the old um, uh, either grammar school or middle school that she used to go, 
and some girls were just doing gym or whatever, right? And she walked in as a surprise, and those girls would just start screaming and so excited because they were so happy to see her. Yes. And, and that was the kind of attraction that she has on people. She was that attractive. She attracted children, and, and she is not like, you know, dressing, you know, particularly like, uh, you know, elaborate or whatever. But, you know, she was nice, but, but that, her personality, uh, her presence. Yeah, I, I think we see, we've seen that in other women where they are just approachable. The fact that she is the first lady, the fact that she is a celebrity, it, 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 it's kind of almost like Princess Diana. You just saw her as just a regular woman, a friend, and that I think there's something there that sh that that Michelle Obama has that is a very approachable, that is non-threatening, and that is attractive. Again, I'm not talking from a beauty standard. I'm just talking about. You just like that. You're drawn to it, whether it's a kid, whether it's mm -hmm. kids, or frankly, I mean, I would love to meet Michelle Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you get to meet her one day, you know, uh, let her know I like to meet her too. <laughs> Will do. Yeah, that is uh, La Lady Diane. There was a very, very interesting comparison. Uh, at this note here, um, I think uh, we can end this part of the interview. So thank you for coming on. You're welcome, Paul. Well, we're back, part two of our interviewing of each other. And Paul, I, I read a paper that you did and I thought it was brilliant and challenging and I have some questions for you and I hope that you'll share as well. The name of the paper was A Foreign American, How Asian Americans Are Treated as Foreigners in Their Own Country. So, so Paul, right off the top, the title was fascinating. Tell me about it. Yeah, that paper was actually, well, it was a blog. Uh, it was written at the time when I was with this organization called Uncommon Voices Collectives. And that was a time when we had the, uh, the attack on uh, Asian Americans. And so the, uh, the director of the organization asked me to um, write, a, write, write a piece on it. So yeah, so there was uh, some of the reflections I had. So in that paper, you mentioned perpetual foreigner syndrome. Could you explain that? Yeah, I actually learned that term from um, uh, Dr. Walter Kim, who is the, uh, the president of National Association of Evangelicals. And uh, basically what that term means that no matter how long you've been in this country, no matter how many generations you've lived, and people still think of you as a foreigner. And uh, to be honest, uh, I was actually um, happy to learn that term. To me, it's comforting because for the longest time I thought, oh, it's only me. And then when I read about that, when I listened to that, and I said, oh, wow, so there's a term for it. I'm not the only person. So there's a whole lot of people, especially Asian people who feel the same way that I did. So with that then, it, just so we can get the perspective, tell me about what it was like for you when you came to California in the 70s. Well, yeah, this was a very different world. You know how we talk about diversity these days? 
So there was none of that. Uh, when I came to California in the, the 70s, the American culture was pretty much the melting pot. In other words, you come here and you want to be like uh, assimilate to the mainstream culture. In, in other words, like you, you, you know, you basically lose whatever traits that you have and make it stand out. You become just part of, you know, the uh, the big old American pie. And uh, uh, I, I came here when I was uh, 16 year old, and uh, I was in uh, high school junior. And yeah, time was very different. Uh, at that at that point of life, uh, there was no such thing as Asians or Chinese. We're all Orientals. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember that other kids would ask me, hey, where are you from? And I, I would tell them that, well, I'm from Hong Kong. And it was like, what was that? <laughs> the only foreign country, the only Asian country they are familiar with at that time was Japan. That's it. And I think probably because we have a naval base there. And so I would, you know, pretty much like feel very uncomfortable. I have to explain myself what Hong Kong is. They would ask me like, so is it China? And it's not exactly China at that time because, you know, the political situation is complicated. And then you start trying to explain it. And, you know, high school students are not really interested in learning history from you anyway. So it was, it was yeah, it was different. It was hard. I would imagine that just being... 16 um, is tough enough, right? Much oh, less. Oh, that's absolutely. You know, we're all searching for our identities, and for many of us, we're still trying to search for our identities. Um, I would, I would love for you to read a portion of of your blog, um, because I think it, I just I, please just read it, please. Okay. In the end, I am not choosing an optimistic mindset. I am choosing a prophetic one. As a Christ follower who faces a national crisis, uh, a national rise in racial crimes against Asian Americans, I resolve to two choices. One is to assume the role of the victim. The victim is passive. He receives whatever assaults or abuses that may be directed to him and hopes that the damage be contained to the minimum. He prays that no harm will come to him today. The other choice is one of the prophet. The prophet does not run away from his sufferings. He embraces them and turns them to become redemptive. So Paul, I mean, you and I sit here, me as a black woman, you as an Asian man. I, I read that or I, and, I, and then listen to you read it. And, and so I'm wondering, Yes, but what does that look like? Uh, that's a great question, Sharon. And, and I have to be honest with you. When I wrote this, I was stealing from uh, the African-American community. <laughs> and uh, especially from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he was someone, you know, on the uh, being oppressed end. But he was never really the, a passive person. He was actually a very, uh, playing a very active role uh, in, in the civil disobedience. And um, I, I try to explain to some of my friends what civil disobedience means. It doesn't just mean that you are nonviolent. It means a whole lot more than that. Uh, I remember that he uh, wrote about... Um, redemption 
means that not only uh, the one who's being oppressed uh, needs to be saved, but also the conscience of the one who is oppressing him needs to be redeemed. That is the redemption plan of God. So to me, a prophet is someone who, who embraces that suffering, but he, he walks right through them. And to be honest, I don't know exactly what that looks like because it, it is probably uh, different from uh, in one situation from another. But when I wrote this, I, I, I have um, the Emmanuel Church and Dylan Roof in mind. I, I think you know that story, right? Of course. Yeah, so Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel Church and they welcomed him to their Bible study and prayer meeting. And towards the end, he actually started massacring people. And um, uh, uh, after the whole thing was over, uh, when he was caught, when he was tried, the judge actually allowed the members of Emmanuel Church to walk to Dylan Roof and say whatever was in them, on their mind. What was so amazing was that one and after another, they walk up to him and offer him forgiveness. I, to me, that was just absolutely amazing. I think the, ch the world was changed a bit. You know, just from you know witnessing that, so that actually gives me um, a model, a direction, a beacon to what it means to be redemptive. I don't know if it makes any sense to you. Um, it probably doesn't make any sense without a situation, but I think that when the time comes, when we think back to what Emmanuel Church did what they testified and you know it's the same word as martyred how how they martyred how they witnessed themselves you know before the world before God uh, was probably a uh, a direction and which which is instructive to all of us I agree with you Paul I very much remember that event um, and it's just interesting how we process things. One of the one of the takeaways that I took from it was would I have reacted the way the members of Emmanuel Mother Emmanuel Church reacted? And um, it, it, it was it was it, <laughs> it took me a while to get to the place where they were, which showed me and revealed something about me um, that. Um, you know, I still have to deal with. I'm not. Um, I'm not finished yet. God's not finished with me yet. Um, but um, it was a beautiful example of how one walks into that and can resolve, help to resolve the inner turmoil, as well as the turmoil that just came about in that city, in that state, and in our country. I think. I think in that moment. We all saw Wakanda a little bit. <laughs> you are probably correct on that. Right. I have one other question for you, Paul. I just want to go back to this perpetual foreigner syndrome. And in your paper, just to review, you say it's a phenomenon in which people of Asian descent are constantly and consistently perceived as foreigners, even if generations of family members were born in the United States. 
So understanding, Paul, that you don't represent all Asian Americans, mm -hmm. what words of encouragement would you give to Asian Americans who very much feel this perpetual foreigner syndrome? Well, um, I, I suppose I can speak on uh, my own experience, right? And um, the, um, the American culture in the 70s, which is the melting pot, to uh, the transition from that to what we have now, the diversifying plurality, uh, was actually confusing <laughs> to a first-generation immigrant because we have to find out who we are, right? We come here and we, uh, we, be, we become part of the American community and then we start asking ourselves, oh, so who am I now? Uh, what do I do? So from the 70s and say, oh, you're, you're part of the mainstream culture now. You're the melting pot. You're the melting pot. So, oh, okay, so I would let go whatever, you know, in the past. I've become like this now. I'm, I'm part of the American pie. And then now it's actually not the same anymore. It's actually a, a, a diversified plurality. Um, I have to admit that the, uh, I like the diversified plurality more because it allows me to embrace more of not only my present and my future, but also my past. So I came here with a black and white mindset of asking myself like, am I Chinese or am I American? Now I actually understand myself as a Chinese American. And that means a whole lot more than just like one cultural trait. No, I have multifaceted, I'm a person. I'm, I have many cultural traits. And it's a little bit like, um, uh, playing in this in a in an orchestra and I could be playing the violin somebody else may be playing the uh, the French horn or the flute but we are all playing the same symphony and of course we would need to have a conductor uh, which means we need to have shared big principles shared values uh, shared uh, directions and uh, to make this American experiment work and so there may be people who still uh, think of me as a foreigner, uh, but that would be a point of encounter, the point of education, the point of friendship, relationship. And if I take the opportunity and, and make it uh, something constructive, and I think this is how we build bridges. And, uh, and maybe this could be a gift of God that I, that I will forever have this opportunity to build bridges with somebody else. I like it. So in other words, you're not an either or an or. You're, you're both. <laughs> I'm both. <laughs> and, we, and, and I mean, that's what we should be embracing, right? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Paul, and thank you, listeners. You got um, a chance to hear from, from me a little bit and from my good friend and colleague, Paul. And um, I hope that you will give grace to us as we just process together. But we've got you as our audience. I hope that you will just kind of think about some of the things that we've talked about and uh, pray that it would be um, encouraging to you or give you food for thought. That was so nice. I should have you come on and say that every single time when we end. Well, thank you, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs>